everybody, and welcome to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. I'm your host, Sean, and this is episode number, well, not really giving it a number this time because, uh, well, I think I mentioned last time. In fact, I'm sure I mentioned last time that uh, I was getting a little bit burnt out on doing the, well, no, I wouldn't say doing this podcast because I really love doing it, and uh, I didn't want to take a break. I still wanted to record and put something out because I really enjoy doing it. And if I didn't record something, I'd be really disappointed um, in myself for not putting out some kind of content for people who listen to this regularly, especially those who donate via Patreon. And also I, I'd not be doing something that I really like doing that I can count on doing every couple of weeks. So I figured, well, what's a good compromise. I spoke with other podcasters and, Something in common they said that uh, kind of keeps them going when they feel burnt out is they'll go a little bit off topic or do entirely, completely off the beaten track kind of episodes. So that's kind of what I'm going to be doing now. And things are just kind of weird right now because, first of all, I really don't know what my status is at Midwest Gaming Classic. I'm definitely going, and uh, I'm supposed to be representing Pie Factory Podcast my other podcast, uh, Jim and I started uh, getting in touch with uh, Dan at Midwest Gaming Classic months ago. In fact, our first contact with him for this year's show was before they even announced the dates. And he's like, all right, hold on. But easy, easy, guys. Just uh, back off a little. Get back in touch with me after we mention the dates. So as soon as the dates came out, sent him another email. He's like, ah, great. Good, good to hear from you guys. We're going to get you set up and, um, you know, just make sure you periodically reach out to me as the show date gets closer and all this stuff. And he had mentioned that what he was thinking of doing was having a special room just for podcasts. And we noticed we haven't really been hearing back from Dan. So kind of, and, and especially because I heard from another podcaster that Dan had gotten back to him and said, here's what you need to do. Uh, if you want electricity, you're going to have to fill this stuff out and do this and do that. We hadn't heard that kind of thing. So I reached out to Dan. I was like, Dan, what's going on? We The show's coming up, and we still haven't heard from you. He's like, He said, yeah, I know. I have a couple hundred emails I'm still trying to catch up on. Definitely get in touch. But uh, I'm not sure exactly what's happening. I don't know if it's that he ran out of room in the podcast room or if plans just didn't go through and there won't be a podcast room because he said that uh, – Pie Factory is actually going to be in the vendor hall. There's always this part of me that fears that we're not going to have a space after all. <laughs> but either way, I'm still going to be there, at least as a paying customer. So I don't know. I don't know. But I hope, I, I, I'm really hoping that Dan will come through for us. He has for two years. Hopefully he'll make it a third. But either way, I'm really excited about going. And uh, what else can I say? I did get a new 7800 homebrew in the mail. I believe it was another one of those book carts done by Walter. Uh, I got this in the mail like a week or two ago, and it's literally still in the envelope. I haven't even opened it yet. And that's another thing about doing this podcast is that I noticed in the last few episodes, I was not having adequate enough time to prepare. I was able to do all the research and stuff, but to actually play the games... I've hardly touched my 7800 in a couple of months, actually. And that's when I realized, wait, I got to do something here. I got to back away. I got to do something. So that's why I'm doing this kind of off-topic episode. Maybe give myself a little bit of a chance to catch up. 
And one of the big reasons that I haven't been touching my 7,800 in a while is literally my marriage because I'm happily married. And uh, part of being happily married is you really need to spend a lot of time with your spouse. You really do. And the thing is, my wife and I, one of the reasons that are we're going on, it's going to be 19 years in September that we've been married. And one of the reasons for that is simply that we really do enjoy each other very much. We're best friends. That's how you got to get it to work. You have to be best friends. And we have everything in common, almost. One of the things we don't have in common is video games. So uh, basically, I usually don't play video games when my wife is home and wants to spend time with me. So uh, we've been spending a lot of time together doing stuff. And so I haven't really had a chance to play a lot of games. I did play, however, uh, I'm sure you've all heard about it by now. There's a online version of the Atari 2600 Venture and it's multiplayer. And I played a round of that with uh, uh, my friend Jim from Pie Factory Podcast. We got together with uh, Greg and George from the Super NES podcast and PlayStation, is it PlayStation Power, I think, that they call their other podcast. And we played a couple of games that way. With uh, if if you heard uh, Ferg's most recent episode, you heard him talk about that and about how. Uh, in fact, when I bailed out, Ferg happened to because uh, uh, what happened was Jim put out a call. Hey, anybody want to play the head to head adventure tonight? And a bunch of people responded. I think what happened was Ferg wasn't available until a little bit later that night, so he wasn't available until after I dropped. So he joined in and he had some fun with it too. If you didn't hear his most recent episode of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, he was talking about how they went over, well, I was I was there too before Ferg joined, but they all got together on Skype to talk it out, to kind of synchronize themselves, say, okay, here's, here's the settings I want you all to do, and all that stuff. And while they were playing, while we were all playing, we were trash talking each other. It was just freaking hysterical. And it's so much fun. You got to try it out. Get a couple of friends together and play head-to-head adventure. It is so much fun. It really is, especially if you're a fan of the game adventure. So that's uh, some of the gaming I did. I did get a little bit of time to futz around with my Vectrex that I recently acquired from Scott Stilfen. And that's really it. Uh, My wife is going to be away for a few days this weekend. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm definitely going to dedicate some, some of my alone time to catching up on some gameage gameage. Yeah, I guess. And maybe go to underground retrocade because I have a gift card for there and I have not been there in a while. So in fact, I'm probably going to be there the day that this episode comes out. And something else I, I want to get off my chest, although I don't know if that's really the appropriate way to say it, because it's I don't mean it to sound that way. But uh, there's a reason I'm going to tell this story, and I hope it's uh, I hope it results in something positive here. But probably about two years ago, one of my wife's colleagues, um, I, I don't I'm sure I mentioned this before. My wife is a teacher. She teaches at North Grand High School in Chicago. It's a Chicago Public Schools high school in the inner city, and it's so-called North Grand because it's located not far from where North Avenue and Grand Avenue meet, and it's kind of sort of on the west side, but 
anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, it's there because here is kind of on the north side. But anyway, she teaches what they call seminar classes, which the seminar, if you've never heard of that, I think it's a fairly new thing, actually. From what I gather, I might be oversimplifying it, but from what I gather, seminar classes is when they teach the kids like real actual skills they will need in life. For example, my wife's senior seminar, where she has seniors, they do things like filling out uh, FAFSA forms for student loans and a lot of college preparedness and things like that. And I, th- I think one of the seminar classes, they actually learn how to properly write checks and things. So people who say, oh, they don't teach kids what they're, um, uh, guess what they're doing now, everybody? They're teaching kids the things that you wish they'd teach them. But having said that, a couple of years ago, one of my wife's colleagues found out that his daughter had spinal cancer and they said that it was inoperable. And of course, neither Phil nor his daughter wanted to go down without a fight. So they did some investigating and they found a hospital in Boston and they said, you know what, let's see what we can do. Let's see if at the very least, if we can't get rid of the cancer, if we can't give Moe at least some extra years to her life. And so they said, yeah, let's do it. And the treatment that Moe had to go through was just, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how she, she actually got through it. She was just very, very strong about it. She's, there was one point where they actually literally had to knock her out for three weeks straight, but she had all kinds of chemotherapy. She had surgeries. She had to go through physical therapy so she could move again, basically. And uh, from what I gather, while they were in Boston, like before all the really intense stuff happened, they made a, like a daddy-daughter trip out of it. They went sightseeing. They had a great time. And Phil said, you know what? I'm going to have to do this with my other kids, too, because this was just amazing. The, the bonding we did and the fun times we had, my other kids deserve this, too. So he's planning to do that uh, in the next few years as well. So that's that's really cool. But uh, long story short, probably back in November, um, they found out that the cancer had come back and it was pretty aggressive this time. And the doctors were pretty sure that Moe would not see the end of 2018. And um, yeah, it's very heartbreaking to hear something like that. But something just that you just love to hear is that Moe's attitude through it was just nothing but positivity. I guess she thought, well, if I'm doomed, I might as well just make the best of this. So she decided that what she wanted to do, she said she wanted to leave behind a legacy of some kind. So she came up with this idea. She came up with this idea. She said, I want there to be a scholarship for Chicago public school students. And so she worked with her dad. She worked with Phil to uh, get things started. And she said, here's the, here's what I want the money to go to. I want these kids to get their, to get the scholarship. And so what's happening is every year two Chicago public schools, seniors, I don't know if it's just specifically North grand high school or all of CPS as it were, but every year, two kids are going to get a $2,500 scholarship if they meet certain certain, uh, uh, requirements that I'm not really going to get into right now because it's, I'm already off topic as enough as it is for this entire episode. So that scholarship in Moe's name currently exists. There's an ongoing fundraiser through GoFundMe 
my wife and I have given to it a couple of times and we plan to periodically add to that fund as well. And I invite you all to donate to Moe's scholarship fund. I will put a link to that in the show notes, but, uh, but, um, anyway, just, uh, this past Saturday, which was St. Patrick's day, it was probably around eight o'clock. My wife logged into Facebook and then she just started sobbing and, my first thought was, oh no, this must mean that Moe died. And I looked over her shoulder, sure enough, yeah. Because what Phil was doing periodically was posting Moe updates. Like, uh, Moe update number whatever, we're in Boston now getting treatment. And, well, Saturday's Moe update started with the words, Moe's gone. And uh, my, my wife was just devastated to hear that, to hear about her. I mean, we knew it was coming, but still, it, it doesn't really make it any less sad. It doesn't really make it any less sad knowing that it's coming, but something that really helps is right up to the end. Moe was just very well, as upbeat as she could be while she's on medications to kill off her pain and everything. But, uh, Phil described the last three days with her as joyous, which you can't really ask for more. That's, that was nice to see that. And it's kind of weird because he was talking about how the last thing that Moe said before she passed was kind of saying to nobody in particular, she just said, so what do I do now? And it's, it was almost as if she was having a conversation with somebody. And I heard that about other people. Like uh, when was it Timothy Leary who, when he died, he, his last words were to nobody in particular. Why not? Why not? Sam Kinison, when he got in that car wreck that killed him, he was still alive when responders got to the scene and they said the same thing about him. He was having a conversation with someone. He was saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. What? Oh, well, okay. Okay. And they're like, who's he talking to? And then he died. So it's kind of weird. I mean, it's, it, I, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into theological uh, philosophies or anything, but it's just kind of interesting that that happened. But the fact that Phil said that Moe's last days were joyous, that, that helps that that really does. And it shows just what a great kid she was. She was only 16 too, that she just kept such a positive attitude through her last days. And that what she wanted, that basically her dying wish wasn't for herself, but it was to help other people. That's really amazing. It really is. I can only hope that if, you know, God forbid I'm ever in a similar situation where I know that the end is near, I hope I can be goofy and upbeat. Uh, she's always really an inspiration. But again, I'm putting a link to her scholarship fund in the show notes. I encourage you to donate if you can. And my next Patreon payout from this podcast is going straight to that fund too. So those of you who donate to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast via Patreon. I thank you. Thank you for for helping out uh, with Moe's scholarship. And something else, um, of course, when Moe learned that she only had a limited time, besides the scholarship fund, Moe had told people that uh, she wants people to show up to her funeral wearing yellow because yellow is a bright color and she wanted to help make the world a brighter place. That, that's just awesome. Uh, I don't really know the family and I didn't go to the funeral, but I figured, hey, at least do something yellow. So those of you who follow me on Facebook, you notice that I changed my profile picture to Pac-Man, who is a yellow character. And uh, 
the reason I did that was that was the first thing I could think of when I heard about the yellow thing. So I was like, hey, in honor of Moe, I'll change my profile picture to something yellow. And my wife did something similar. She changed her profile picture to uh, a picture of a bunch of daisies, her favorite flower, like yellow daisies. And, uh, and I know that she had picked out something yellow to wear to work. She didn't go to the funeral that day because, well, she had to work, really. <laughs> So that's why you see something yellow in my profile picture. And that's also why the artwork attached to this episode has a yellow background. That was in honor of Moe. But, man, uh, I hope I didn't bring too many people down. I just wanted to uh, talk about that because it's something that's been going on. And uh, I never got to meet Moe. In fact, I don't think my wife ever got to meet her either. But uh, I really wish I could have. and the family there just want to get back to some sense of normalcy. And I know that Phil is going to just kind of uh, just basically collapse and get a massage or something. And I hope, he, I hope that uh, he's, that he and his wife are going to do just something really good for themselves. But uh, yeah, just, it's just interesting how something so terrible could also be such uh, surprisingly a positive thing. And I hope that this podcast does bring some positive things as well. So I had said before that uh, kind of taking a page out of the Ferg book of podcasting, what I want to do is talk a bit about what I do for a living. And uh, and I think well, what I do for a living, I'm a website developer and everybody use if you're listening to this show, you are you use a website from time to time. You almost have to. So most people. I say most because I know of at least one person who doesn't apply. <clears throat> Dad. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> most people have used websites and have experienced various idiosyncrasies. So I kind of like to offer my insight as to what goes on behind them and the people who put them together. So, um, ah, so here we go. Sean talking about himself for a little bit. I guess my first real exposure to programming was way back in the 8-bit computer era. I remember it was, I I think it it was either Lincoln Mall or Orland Square Mall, where the Montgomery Ward had a Commodore VIC-20 out on display. And uh, the way that the Commodore computers were, and Atari computers, and Texas Instruments 994A, the way those computers were, was if you turned on the computer without anything in the disk drive or tape drive or cartridge slot or whatever, you would be inside a basic programming language interpreter. And that was also kind of sort of the operating system. So to load programs and stuff, you actually had to learn at least a little tiny bit of basic beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Remember that? The VIC-20 at the Montgomery Ward... There were a couple of small programs you could type in and run and see what they do. And it was just your very basic 10 print hello, 20 go to 10. And then you run it and it just prints hello line after line after line until you make it stop. So little things like that. And I remember back then, the Chicago Tribune and the Sunday Comics section would actually publish little type-in programs. I don't remember a lot of them. I do remember one of them was specifically for the TI-99-4A, and it was supposed to put breakdancing characters on your screen. 
And I remember bringing that to school because where I went to school at the time, all the classrooms had TI-99 4As. So I was like, ooh, during our lunch break, I'll type that in and see if I can get some breakdancing things on our TI computer. So a bunch of classmates and I kind of like commandeered the Texas Instruments one day and uh, try as we might, we couldn't get the thing working. We looked over and over for typing errors and stuff. Couldn't find any, but oh, well, what am I going to do now? We just gave up and we're like, yeah, screw it. <laughs> uh, but that's really how I started learning programming. And I know I mentioned in this podcast before that when I graduated from eighth grade, yeah, where I went to school, you, you graduated from eighth grade. But one of my graduation presents was a Commodore 64C. It's uh, one of the newer releases of the Commodore 64, and it looked really nice. In fact, I'm really hoping to get a Commodore 64 before too long, and I really hope it's going to be a Commodore 64C because I really liked it. And of course, I learned a lot more basic with that thing. This was 1988, so I kind of got in the Commodore game a little bit in the late side. But I learned a lot of basic uh, from various type-in programs you'd get from magazines and things. And so I'd learn what did what, what it, what a for next loop was, what the difference was between go sub and go to, uh, what peaking and poking is, and what you poke to get certain things to happen in a Commodore 64. I learned a lot of things like that. My brother had an Atari 65XE, actually. In fact, he had it before I had the Commodore. And I used to do the same thing with his 65XE. I would type in programs from magazines and books and see what happens. And I remember in high school, my senior year, I took a basic programming course and aced it, of course. And when I was in college, I started out as a computer science major. And uh, in the computer science program where I went to college, the first thing they taught you was Fortran. And this was 1992. And I nobody really understood why it was Fortran because we were all thinking, hey, it should be C or Pascal. But no, it was Fortran, and it wasn't even Fortran 90, the new version of Fortran. It was Fortran 77. But what are you going to do? Computer Science 2 was more Fortran, <laughs> and Computer Science 3 was C programming. But uh, due to various circumstances that I'm not going to get into right now, I ended up changing my major from Computer Science to Journalism with a focus on radio broadcasting. I still did some computer stuff now and then, of course. But when I got out of college, I got a part-time job on the radio, got a full-time job at Sharp Electronics doing tech support for uh, PDAs. Remember the mobile devices before we had smartphones, you had to tech support for those things. And then um, I moved to New Jersey and got a job as an editor at TFH Publications, started out uh, editing books about small mammals, and then moved over to Tropical Fish Hobbyist, which was the flagship magazine over at TFH, which is still going on to this day. So I worked there for a couple of years, then got a job at a PR firm for better money. And the, the job at the PR firm, I was writing press releases and things and eventually promoted to an account manager. And we specialized in high tech firms and we would uh, support our clients at trade shows and things. And I, oh, I hated trade shows, still hate trade shows, but hey, I ended up dreading that job so much. I really hated it. And one of the things I didn't like about it was I would be, say, at trade shows and watching the clients talk to potential customers 
And even when they weren't talking to customers, just talking amongst themselves, I'm thinking this is the kind of stuff I should be doing. I shouldn't be writing about it. I should be doing it. So my wife encouraged me to take classes at Brookdale Community College, which is the Monmouth County College in New Jersey. So I took a lot of programming courses. I took um, a C++ course. Uh, I learned Visual Basic, uh, JSP, which is a web programming language. I took a JavaScript course, a Visual Basic course. I took Java. And uh, what happened was uh, at some point I ended up quitting the PR job because the stress was just really killing me. And my wife was making enough money at her job to support the both of us. She made a really good salary back then. Then she was like, you know what? I don't like money. I'm going to be a teacher. But hey, that's a story for another occasion. In the meantime, though, what I was doing was uh, I, I got a part-time teaching job for a test prep company, and I still have that job to this day. In fact, as I record this, I'm in the midst of teaching a GRE prep course, but that's neither here nor there. So basically, that's what I was kind of using to kind of earn my own money. But there came a time when my wife found out that she was getting laid off from her job, which meant both of us were really going to be unemployed soon. So I had to really pound the pavement, just hurry up and get any job that I could get. And I ended up working full time for the company where I teach test prep courses for. So I had to drop out of Brookdale. What I didn't realize when I dropped out was I had enough credits for an associate's degree. So one day in the mail, an associate's degree in webmaster administration showed up and saying, congratulations, you've met the requirements. So I was like, oh, cool. Okay. Even though the job that I got wasn't a programming job, I eventually did do a little bit of website programming because what happened was what we would do is send out a weekly email saying, hey, if anybody's available to teach this course over in Hackensack or proctor this SAT practice test in Freehold or whatever, we would send out weekly emails saying what work was available for anybody who wanted it. And eventually somebody suggested, hey, let's do a website. So I stepped in, I said, let me do it. So I used the PHP language that I had taught myself, designed a website where we would list all of our courses. And if you wanted to teach the course, you would click on a link that says, hey, I'm available to teach it. And the cool thing about that is it would be live updated. So anytime we staff something, boom, we could update the site and it would be really up to the minute. I designed a little, uh, what we call a content management system that's basically kind of a separate site that only staffers can use to maintain all the information where they could enter a course that was available and things like that. So um, I, I actually got a lot of props for that, but unfortunately I did not get employee of the month for that. Someone beat me at that. And what was also really cool is that I learned how to do crystal reports. Uh, crystal reports is a software in case you haven't heard of it. It's a software you can design documents that kind of update automatically. It's almost kind of like a mail merge thing, but there's a lot of programming involved in those things that are, and the programming is very C like basically, if you know how to do C, you can program crystal reports. So I was doing a lot of that and long story short, I stayed with the company, moved to the company's Chicago office and eventually got laid off from that, got another job doing the same thing at another company for a couple of years. And I really hated working for that company that I got hired by after I got laid off. 
Thankfully, they shut down their Illinois offices, which meant that I was out of a job and I was really happy because I hated that job. And my wife told me, she said, look, with all the experience you've had, the work that you've done on the side, because I also did uh, freelance websites for like mom and pop businesses now and then, and I did my own personal projects. My wife said, there's no reason that you shouldn't get some sort of IT job as your next job. So I tried doing that. I went six months and um, I didn't even reach out to IT recruiters. They actually reached out to me after finding my resume online and um, nothing really came about them. I would get these opportunities. Recruiters would be constantly calling me and say, hey, we have this opportunity here, this opportunity there. You want me to send your resume over? Great. And I'd never hear back. Or once in a great while, I would get an interview, but it wouldn't land me anything. So I remember it was right around President's Day weekend, 2013, when I called up one of these recruiters and I said, look, you've been basically working with me for a year now and you haven't done anything for me. Why am I not getting hired? Why am I not getting any bites? Why am I getting nothing? He said, well, you know what? Come on down. Let's talk face to face. Bring your resume with you. So I did. And probably within two minutes after we sat down together, he said, I'll tell you exactly why you're not getting any bites. This resume does not say developer. It's just a list of your most recent jobs. You got to build your resume for what you're looking to get. He told me anything here that has nothing to do with website development or software development, get rid of it. Take it off your resume. And didn't you tell me that you were doing a website for a handyman? Well, put that on there too. Put those sites that you do on there. So I did. I updated my resume, sent it back to him. He said, okay, this is a lot better. And then I updated the resume with other recruiters I was dealing with. I updated my LinkedIn profile. In fact, for my LinkedIn profile, I actually said, I have been working in PHP freelance and on my own for my projects for over 10 years, yet none of you people will hire me. 10 years. I mean, I actually said that too. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not paraphrasing. Well, anyway, I decided that on President's Day, I was going to just go downtown and just drop in on all the recruiters I've been dealing with and say, look, get me something. Here's my updated resume. Just basically do a tour of all the recruiters that I've been working with. And literally as I was on the train, I got a phone call from a recruiter I'd never heard of. And she said, listen, I found your profile on LinkedIn and it cracked me up. And she said, I have a lot of clients who would love to meet with you. So we talked for a while and uh, we exchanged phone numbers and uh, she said, okay, I'll give you a call later on this afternoon. So I go home. Sure enough, she calls me that afternoon. She said, okay, I have these two clients that I want to set you up with. There's client A over here and there's client B over here. But um, thing is, client B tends to only hire super, super senior people. But let's try it anyway. Worst that'll happen is they'll say no thanks. So I said, sure, fine. And when I was downtown, not only did I do kind of a drop-in tour of uh, the various recruiters I'd been talking with, but I also had kind of an informal interview with somebody who wanted a developer. 
for a little business, um, a, a business model he was starting up that was meant to um, fund independent filmmakers and things so they can basically get their projects off the ground. And uh, I found his ad at DePaul University where I was in grad school at the time. So I was going to, I was just looking at postings up there, just calling anybody I could. So he's like, yeah, come in, let me talk to you. And he offered me a job as lead developer, but the catch was he could only pay me in equity. And I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's not going to work. Anyway, what happened was, um, the next day I get a call back from the recruiter saying that client B, the people who only wanted to hire super, super senior people wanted to chat with me. So she had the lead developer call me and give me a screening. And uh, I remember when I was talking to him, he was saying, okay, well, how would you determine whether you would use PHP to do something, which is a server side language, meaning that, uh, it actually executes on the web server itself on a remote computer versus JavaScript. And JavaScript, in case you don't know, actually runs inside your own browser. The server kicks the JavaScript over to your web browser, and then the browser operates it, which means the server doesn't have any control over it. It's up to your computer. And my answer to that question was, well, it really depends, because if you use JavaScript, Somebody could just open up the JavaScript in their browser, make a few changes to it, and uh, make the program do what they want. And he said, well, what if the customer is very, very stupid? And I said, well, you know what? You probably want to use JavaScript after all in that case because, hey, you know, take some load off the server. So, uh, But I don't remember what else he asked me in that screening, but uh, we talked for a few minutes. And then I got a call about an hour later from that same recruiter saying, um, they want you to come in for an interview. And I said, you're kidding me. And she said, by the way, the reason that uh, client B wants to bring you in is because the dev manager, the developer manager was intrigued by the mention of Amiga on your resume. Because <laughs> in the skills section, I actually listed Amiga operating system at, on it. Because I figured, well, that's going to be fairly obscure. And if people, I mean, everybody they see is going to know Windows, probably Mac, maybe Linux. But if I throw Amiga on there, that'll tell them, hey, I can adapt to some pretty diverse situations. But yeah, because I mentioned Amiga, I got the attention of a website firm. And I remember I went into the interview and... I met with the entire development team. I think it was like four or five people and they handed me a black dry erase marker and had me do a little programming exercise on a whiteboard. And the thing about that is, um, again, I am a part-time test prep instructor and where I work for that, we are trained to be very dynamic. We're trained to call on people and uh, ask leading questions using the Socratic method and basically not be boring. So once they handed me that dry erase marker, I suddenly went into test prep mode. My exercise was to design a little tic-tac-toe game, like specifically a function to check if there's three in a row. So I grabbed the dry erase marker, and I remember saying, okay, so we're going to play tic-tac-toe here. So what do we need in order to have a win? We're, we need three in a row, right? So what's one direction we should check? Uh, and, I, and I was actually calling on various people in the dev team. 
Uh, you're going to need a, a, a horizontal row. Right, you're going to need a horizontal row. And I, I, I put some pseudocode on the board and everything. <laughs> and I remember on the, as the dev manager was escorting me off the premises after the interview was over, I said, by the way, why were you intrigued by the mention of Amiga on my resume? He said, well, because I'm a child of the 80s, man. <laughs> so we said our goodbyes, and that was that. And then I went to have some lunch with my niece who was going to school not far from there. So I met up with her and while I'm having lunch with her, I get a call from the recruiter again saying, um, when can you start? I said, are you kidding me? She's like, yeah, they are making you an offer. And the amount of money that she said, I almost passed out because I had never made anywhere near that kind of money in my life. It was an amount unheard of for me. So I was like, yeah, tell them I'm ready to start whenever they want me. So there we go. And in the meantime, I got a call from another firm who found me on LinkedIn. They said, hey, come on in for an interview. And here's the salary we're looking at. And that salary was even more than what client B wanted to pay me. <laughs> so I was like, okay, fine. So I went into that interview with this other firm. And I, I got to tell you, one of the questions they asked me, they said, okay, what we like to do from time to time is a lunch and learn. And uh, by the way, those of you listening who don't know what a lunch and learn is, it's pretty much what you would think it is. There'd be lunch brought in and uh, you would learn something during your lunch break. And so they, they said, yeah, so we like to teach, we like to teach each other here things that we learn. So what would you teach us if you had to teach for a lunch and learn? And I told the guy, I said, honestly, I really don't know because I don't know any of you. I don't know what your skills are. It really depends on what you already know, what you don't already know, what I know that you don't know. And then he said, well, just any topic in the world. Think of a topic that you think we might not know. And so I said, okay, here's what I would teach you. I would teach you how to tell if a song is performed by the Temptations or by the Four Tops. And hand to God, these people who are interviewing me, I got their attention immediately. They're like, really? How do you do that? So I explained it to them and, um, they said, okay, um, we're going to, we're if you can just wait here, we're going to talk alone for a minute and uh, we'll come back to you. And so they left me alone for about 30 seconds and they came back in and they said, so when can you start? So, uh, so this job that offered a lot more money than client B offered me, uh, it was, it was mine if I wanted it. And they said, what do you like? Do you like Mac or PC? And I said, Mac. And they pointed me to a 27-inch iMac. And they said, well, there's your computer. That's the computer you're going to use starting Monday. I said, great. So I left there. And on my way out, I called the recruiter who set me up with client B and said, you know what? I got a better opportunity. I'm going to have to tell client B no thank you after all. And she said, well, the thing is, remember, you have already signed a contract. Yeah, I left that part out that I actually already signed the contract. She said, you can't take that job. I said, ah, oh, crap, you're right. So I called up the other firm, said, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to pass on this one. They're like, oh, man, it's a shame. We were hoping you'd be joining us. I was like, yeah, I know, but I already signed a contract, so I don't want to break a contract. And, you know, so we said our goodbyes. So... So what happened was I got a three-month contract with Client B, and I'm going to keep it at that. I'm not going to name names because for various reasons, for my own protection, their own protection. I mean, I'm not giving away any trade secrets or anything 
or defaming anybody. It's just, I just feel a little bit hung up about uh, getting into too much detail. But they offered me a three-month contract, and um, from what the recruiter told me was that they usually extend the contract or convert it over to direct full-time employment. And I even told her that. I said, well, I don't know if I really want a contract job because that's that's one reason that the other firm looked really attractive was it was more money and it was a full-time direct hire job. It wasn't a contract. And so the recruiter said, well, here's the thing. It is my job to make sure that you keep working. It's my job that uh, if I find out that your contract isn't going to be extended, that I have to pound the pavement myself and find you work. She said, don't worry, I have your back. So I started working for client B, as I will heretofore call them. And it was quite an experience. First of all, the way things worked at client B was you would work off of a laptop. They give you a laptop and you would mount it to a docking station with a couple of monitors. So you would have your laptop monitor and two external monitors So you could have your source code open in one screen. You could have a web browser rendering the site in the other screen. And uh, that's how it was. And the job that I had specifically was on the development team, the PHP development team for a major, major ordering website that uh, I'm not going to get into more detail other than to say that uh, if you're in the United States and you're listening to this, you've probably used that site at some point. Client B was basically a company that was, in a way, kind of like Sterling Cooper on Mad Men in that there were a whole bunch of really small customers and one huge customer. And, of course, the team I was on was working for the huge customer, the American Tobacco. And it it really was the equivalent of American Tobacco in a way because in Mad Men, Sterling Cooper was only working on the Lucky Strike brand of American Tobacco. Well, the huge customer that Client B works with is just one brand of a bigger company that has a lot of brands. So it's kind of like that. It's that big customer and a whole bunch of other smaller customers. Thing is, though, when I started, they didn't have a laptop for me. They had ordered a new shipment of laptops, and they said, as soon as the shipment comes in, we'll give you the laptop. You can actually start. My laptop didn't come in for three weeks. So for three weeks, I had to spend the day just basically shadowing one of the more experienced developers. So we got to know each other pretty well. (laughs) So my laptop comes in and I'm finally on my own and I start developing. And what happened was this was the process at this firm. You would be assigned a ticket, a electronic ticket that is, that would describe what the task is that you're supposed to do. For example, um, if you order this product using this coupon, it won't let you check out, but it should let you check out. And of course the task would be to fix it. So what I as developer would have to do is fix that particular bug and then have another developer on the team do what's called a code review. And a code review is basically a proofreading. Somebody would have to look at the code that I wrote Make sure that it doesn't have any syntax errors or basically interfere with someone else's code in a possibly harmful way. And if it looks fine, then the person reviewing the code will take any code changes I make and merge them into the master branch. And then there would be a separate QA department. 
QA being quality assurance. The QA department's job is to actually test the code, test the website, make sure it works as expected. If it doesn't work, then they kick the ticket back to the developer and say, well, okay, it works when I do this, but now if I try to do this thing, it still has that same issue. And of course, you'd have to go ahead and fix it again. And by the way, not only does QA test your change, but they also do some regression testing, which means they test other parts of the site that weren't necessarily part of that ticket just to make sure nothing was broken in the process of fixing this bug. If all the tests pass, then what happens is that code that fixed the bug would go into the staging environment and the tests would be run all over again in the staging environment. And the staging environment was as close to the live production environment as you could get without it being live. And of course, if anything happened during staging, like suddenly your code no longer works once it's in staging, then your ticket gets kicked back to you and you'd have to figure out why it suddenly no longer works now that it's in staging. And then of course, fix it again. And once the ticket passes all the tests, it's marked as basically okay for release. And then on a designated date, all the code changes that were made in the last specific period of time for those changes, which is called a sprint, once that happens, then there's a scheduled release in which all that code goes live. And the release would happen usually at around 6.30 in the morning when people are least likely to be using the site. So what happens is the release happens and developers and QA department would test any of the new code that just went in. And if they find any problems with it, then they have to do what's called a hot fix, which is a hurry up and fix kind of situation. It's like, okay, we don't have time to put this in the next release. We have to fix this now. So let's just do a live fix right there in production. That's what's called a hot fix. Uh, it's not quite as simple as it sounds, but I'm just trying to keep it as short and sweet as possible. And uh, that's basically how the development process works, at least with client B, where I was contracting for 90 days. So anyway, my 90 days came up and I get a note from the recruiter saying, hey, they're extending your contract for another 90 days. And I'm like, okay, great. So that 90 days comes and goes and I hear nothing. So I call my recruiter and I said, you know, what's going on? Are they going to extend me? And she said, well, you're still working there. So just keep going there. They're still paying you. The only thing is you're not bound to a contract right now. And she said, that kind of concerns me because at this point you are totally free and clear to pack up and leave if you want and go to another job. And she actually started helping me look for another job just to make sure that I have something in writing that says, Assuming that your performance is up to snuff, we want you working for us. But eventually, uh, one of the HR people came over to my desk and said, hey, I just want to let you know, um, you may have noticed we haven't renewed your contract. Um, I just want to explain something here. We really do want to hire you full time. But the problem is the turnover rate with the contracting firm, your recruiter, uh, that's a little bit expensive and we're not really prepared to pay that right now. But if you can just hold tight, you know, we'll have something for you eventually. So I was like, okay, okay. I thought that sounded kind of odd. So I went back to my recruiter with that and said, Hey, this is what happened. And she said, Oh, okay. She said, yeah, that's totally normal. There's nothing, 
There's nothing illegal or shady about that. That happens all the time. She's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Everything's cool. Anyway, I do. I sit tight for a while and I stay with client B as an outside contractor, even though I didn't really have a contract. And eventually one day that same HR person called me over to his office. He said, here, I need to talk to you for a sec. So I walked into his office and he handed me an offer letter with a salary that was a ton more than I was already making. And I almost passed out right there. And I said, let me sleep on this. He said, no problem. And uh, I called my wife. I said, here's what they're offering me. I said, should I go for it? She, she, said, she immediately said, yes, you idiot. Sign the damn letter. So, <laughs> so I did and I handed it back. And um, I'm still with client B to this day. And, oh, you know, one thing I should mention uh, about the interview that I had with Client B when I got hired, there's this woman named Liz Ryan who is a hiring expert. Like, she knows all the tricks and tips to getting a, to getting a good job. And whenever you go on a job interview, you're going to be asked, okay, do you have any questions? And, of course, you should have questions. And one question that Liz Ryan says you should always have in your pocket is this. What would make you ecstatic about the person you hire in the first 90 days of that person's employment? So I asked that question during the interview. I asked that question during any interview I've ever had since I learned about that. Uh, there was one firm I interviewed for where uh, I asked that to the developer manager. I said, what would make you ecstatic about the candidate you hire after the first 90 days on the job? His answer was, um, I don't know, do websites <laughs> that didn't really. And the thing is, I'll explain the significance of that. When I tell you the answer I got with client B, when I asked the exact same question immediately, immediately, like a reflex after I asked that question, remember I said, this was a group interview in front of the entire development team. I said, what would make you guys ecstatic about the person that joins your team within the first 90 days that person is on the job? And immediately, one of the other developers said, communication. Now, the thing is, that question that I asked, what would make you ecstatic about the first 90 days? That kind of serves a two-way purpose. First of all, it tells the people that you're interviewing with that you really want to make that person happy. You really want to do a good job. You want to do whatever it takes to make somebody ecstatic. At the same time, the answer you get can be very telling about the company culture. Now, that first guy I told you about who said, I don't know, do websites. It kind of tells me he doesn't really, I don't know, he doesn't really know exactly what direction he wants to take. He doesn't really have a good, solid plan. He doesn't say, well, here's what I like in a candidate. He just says, I don't know, do websites. But client B, when I got that response of communication, and given how quickly he said that, that tells me that his pet peeve is when people don't communicate. And so what I could do is address that. And I, I remember saying, look, if you, can, if you ask anybody I've worked with before, they will tell you that I communicate like crazy, sometimes even over-communicate. Anytime something happens, I let somebody know. I let somebody know if somebody called needs a call back. If I'm having a particular problem with something, I will tell people. If I'm going to grab some lunch, I will tell people that like I'm all about the communication. If I get a piece of news, I'll tell I said, you can hear my references, you can ask any of them. They will tell you that. 
So basically I was saying, look, I am the answer to that communication problem. So that's a good question to keep in the, in your back pocket. So yeah, and uh, that was five years ago and I'm still working directly with client B and we have since moved to a new office. The old office was kind of a grotty location of walls falling apart, literally cabinet doors falling off and things. But uh, Memorial Day weekend of 2016, they moved us to a new office on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, Magnificent Mile. The location itself is really cool because it is literally, if you ever watched the Bob Newhart show, not Newhart, but the Bob Newhart show when he played Bob Hartley, I literally work in the building next door to where Bob Hartley was supposed to have worked. In fact, in the later seasons of the Bob Newhart show, you can actually see my building in the opening credit sequence. So yeah, it's really interesting because not only because I work next door to where Bob Hartley worked, and I also live in the same neighborhood where Bob and Emily Hartley lived. That building where they lived is literally just a couple of blocks away from me. So it's just it's just very interesting. And uh, in that same building where Bob Hartley worked, in the basement of that building is the Billy Goat Tavern. And if you've never heard of the Billy Goat Tavern, if you remember the Olympia Diner sketches from Saturday Night Live with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, that was based on the Billy Goat Tavern. And the Billy Goat Tavern's bigger claim to fame is the curse of the Billy Goat. The story that usually goes on is that Billy Sienis, who owned the Billy Goat Tavern, was a big Cubs fan, and he took his pet goat to the World Series at Wrigley Field as an advertising stunt, and people were complaining about the smell of the goat. So they made Billy take his goat outside and tie him up outside. He can stay, but the goat has to stay outside because people are complaining. So he was kind of ticked off that people were complaining about his goat stinking. So he said, you know what? The Cubs are never going to win the World Series again. And so that was the curse of the Billy Goat. That was 1945. That was the last time the Cubs had been in the World Series. And after the Cubs lost the World Series, Billy sent a telegram to the Cubs and said, who stinks now? So that's how the Billy Goat curse was allegedly born. And long story short, the curse was broken in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series. So Billy Goat Tavern, their main location is literally next door to where I work now. Um, I work on the 25th floor and right next to my window is a wonderful view of Lake Michigan. And uh, it's a really great place to work. It's very state of the art. They let us listen to music or whatever when we're working as long as we're using headphones. So that's really cool. I'm very proud of where I work. I'm proud of the work that I do. And um, so, yeah. And uh, what I do is I I program, I mentioned the language uh, PHP, and that's basically my specialty. And PHP is a scripting language that actually runs on a web server. Like back when I started learning how to program for the web in 1994, when I was in college, I just started teaching myself. Back then, all you do is put up just some HTML pages and link them and stuff. But I started wondering, oh, is there a way to just auto-generate things so that you don't have to keep writing a new P, a new HTML page every time you want to publish something? And sure enough, there were many ways to do it. And it turns out PHP is one of them. And PHP works basically on what's called the back end, meaning that the user doesn't actually see what's going on. It's just all done behind the scenes. And I also do some JavaScript, 
it's not my favorite thing in the world, but we do it. Uh, I do it. All of us PHP people do JavaScript as well. And uh, the site that we work on is actually done in Angular JS. And Angular is a particular JavaScript framework. It takes a very particular talent to be able to do that pretty well. Um, they trained all of us in Angular JS, and actually, I did kind of learn it as I went as I kind of looked at the site, so I can actually work on an Angular ticket if I if need be. I don't have to just work on PHP tickets, even though they pretty much just keep me focused on PHP and they keep other people focused on Angular. And the reason that that we use Angular is because Angular is a really, really fast framework, and uh, it's really good for working with JavaScript, and it keeps things nice and compact. It used to be when I started at Client B that the site that the site that we worked on was almost entirely PHP, which meant that anytime you clicked on something, there'd be a new page generated by the server which would take a while. It, it takes a while to do that. And of course, it's a load on the server, which isn't good. What happens now with the Angular front end is that the, the Angular itself, since it's JavaScript, it runs in the browser. It runs on your own computer as opposed to a server somewhere like way out remote in Utah or California or wherever, which means there's a lot less load on the server itself. Now, the way we do things, the PHP doesn't actually generate pages or anything. It just generates the data and shoots it back to the Angular front end, and, and then the Angular handles the data and puts it properly in an HTML file, as it's supposed to be. So, But um, that's really what I do. I mean, it's... I don't know. It just doesn't sound quite as exciting as how as when Ferg described his uh, his career as a baker, but... Uh, it's what I do. It's I really do enjoy doing it. And uh, what's what was really something else was when I I was in I mentioned I was in grad school and I was in grad school when I started at Client B. And I remember one of my coworkers, who's now my boss, actually, he said, "So what are you studying in grad school?" I said, "Well, I'm studying software engineering." And he said, "Really?" He said, "Why are you wasting your time studying software engineering? You do it for a living, pretty much." I said, "You know what? You're right." And the thing is, I was really getting really just, I, I was not liking grad school at all. In fact, I I never liked school. I hated being in a classroom. I always did. I was always a good student. Like in high school and college, I always made uh, honor roll and dean's list. I got a, a college scholarship because of my academic performance. And yeah. But I really hated being in grad school. I would literally have to take days off from work just to do my grad school homework. And I'd only be taking one course at a time, too. It's like, man, why does it, why do, why do I have to lose out on pay to be able to finish a homework assignment? So that plus the fact that I didn't like being in school and, and I'm thinking, man, do I even really need this? Do I even really need to finish this software engineering degree? After all, I have a developer job. That's what I want to do. I want to be a developer. And I really miss the free time that I had. I missed I was really missing the times that I could go to the arcades, like Underground Retrocade. I was really missing having the time to take a class at the Old Town School of Folk Music here in Chicago. I was missing that. I was staying up till 2 a.m. finishing homework and studying for exams and things. So I talked to a few people. I talked to our lead developer, the guy who gave me the initial phone screening. And I said, you know, what do you think? Should I stay in school or what? And he said, well... Here's the thing. 
when I'm looking to hire somebody, the last thing I care about is where they went to school. What I care about is, does this person have the skill? Does this person have the experience? And he told me, he said, I, and I remember, I remember your case because yours was the only time I ever took education into consideration because in your resume, you didn't really have a professional developer job. It was all freelance stuff, but I saw that you were in school working toward a software engineering degree. So that told me, okay, this person is serious. But he said, you know what, though, at this point, you don't really need it because now you have the professional experience. I talked to my recruiter to get her advice, and uh, I was expecting her to, to either say, yeah, you probably don't need it, or to say, no, you should stay in school. Her response, though, she said, you know what, we should talk about this. Let's meet for lunch. And so we did. We met for lunch, and she said, look, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a manager eventually, do you, or do you just want to write code? I said, honestly, I just want to write code. I don't want to be a manager. And she said, you know what? You don't really need the degree then. Having that degree is not going to guarantee you that you're going to get more money. Not having that degree is also not going to guarantee that you won't get more money. <laughs> so she said, you know, if you don't have the degree, then you absolutely don't need it if you want to be a developer. So I dropped out of grad school and I felt so much better. I got my life back. And I was able to sleep again. Uh, the only bad thing about that was I had to start paying student loans. And uh, yeah, those are going to be the death of me. But hey, I've survived paying my student loans so far. Something that I learned working on a development team is that working on a development team is a lot different from doing sites on your own. Because for one thing, when you're on a team, you have multiple people working on the code. And you never know when one person's change might actually change how your own code works. So you got that, you have to get used to that. It, it was just driving me nuts. It's like, wait a minute, this was working. Why is it not working there? Oh, because this other person put in more code that actually makes my code no longer work. It's like, ah, then you have to consult with that developer and say, okay, well, your, your code is interfering with my code here. And you have to come up with some kind of a resolution. And we use a versioning system and a versioning system is basically just uh a way of uh, keeping track of changes. So let's say that you make a change to a PHP file and uh, you suddenly decide, you know what, actually we don't want that change after all. Our versioning system lets you go back to the previous version or lets you skip ahead to a later version or whatever. And uh, the versioning system we use is called Git, G-I-T. And uh, I didn't know Git at all, really, before I started there. So I had to learn on the job. And it really wasn't too hard to learn that. Uh, in fact, a lot, so much of what I learned, I learned on the job. Um, I never used jQuery before. And uh, jQuery, for those of you who don't know, it's a JavaScript library that actually makes a lot of JavaScript coding so much easier. We don't have to type, you don't have to remember these really long, convoluted commands. It makes it a lot simpler because the site we worked on used to have a lot of jQuery on it. Now it doesn't with uh, angular in there. It kind of took away the need for jQuery. And I learned angular. I never even heard of angular before I started working for client B, but it turns out that almost every day I'm learning something new. And that's exactly the kind of job that I want to have. I love learning things. In fact, probably the favorite job I ever had 
was my first job, and that was as a, a library page at the Joliet Public Library. And, a, and if you don't know what that is, a page is basically somebody who's responsible for putting the books away, put, making sure that they're in order on the shelves, and just you know, random things like that. And I worked in nonfiction, and every time uh, I was putting a book away, and if I saw something on the shelf that I liked, I'd kind of just toss it aside and check it out and read it later. And uh, that job really offered me so many opportunities to learn, either through just reading on my own or for learning how certain things work. And those are the kinds of jobs that I love. Like My PR job, I didn't really learn that much. The editorial job I had before that, I didn't really learn that much. But with Client B... I still learn a lot and it's, it really nurtures my, my mind really does. And I'm very grateful for it. They treat us well too. Uh, like for example, when I had my last employee review, my boss told me, we're going to set some goals for you for next year. I really want to see you get some computer certifications, like get, uh, get some CompTIA certifications, maybe Microsoft certified professional because it would really be helpful to us if you also knew how to do some IT stuff. So I'm working on that currently. I'm probably going to work on a CompTIA Network Plus certification. And the cool thing is uh, there's a there's a, a website, lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. And what it is, it's got all kinds of online courses. Like, they're videos. Like, how to... It's basically a bunch of how-to things and it's mostly, if not entirely, like software development related stuff. And, and actually, they have a Network Plus course, and I'm going to take advantage of that. Um, Lynda.com, it's very expensive to use, but thankfully, our company has a subscription that allows like a certain number of people to share it. And I was extended permission to use that. So that's like, yes, I can learn all this stuff. Um, I also learned a lot of cascading style sheets at this job that I have. And the thing is, and and I might've mentioned this in a previous episode, but there's a very common saying that programmers cannot design. And in my own personal experience, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I can program something. I just can't design anything. I, I, my design skills are crap. And all the developers I work with are, they pretty much have the same that same characteristic. They can program very nicely, but they don't know how to design. They don't know how to design. And I know there's always going to be someone who says, well, here's one person out of 500,000 who will prove you wrong. So <laughs> we have some other perks where I work. Like we have a refrigerator that's full of Coca-Cola products and, um, oh, what's that really nasty water that people like for God knows what reason? Um, La Croix or LaCroix, whatever, however you pronounce it. I say LaCroix because I studied French in high school, so there. So they have that at no charge to employees. They have coffee at no charge to employees, which I don't care because I don't drink coffee. They have goldfish, uh, the, the, the snack, not actual goldfish, free for employees. And Oh, and I mentioned before how we work off of laptops. Well, the reason behind that is, well, because you work on a website, you can do that from anywhere. You don't have to be in the office to do that. So basically, they give us laptops, and we're required to take them home with us every day just in case an emergency happens and we need to hurry up and uh, do some coding and log into the company's network so we can push the code and everything. 
It also gives us the opportunity to work from home. We are allowed to work from home one day a month if we so desire for whatever reason. Case in point, like the Tuesday after you hear this, I need to pick my wife up at the airport. So I put in a work from home request and I said, you know, I'm going to be online all day starting at about 7 a.m. Except I'm going to have to step out at about 1 to go get my wife. And they do also make exceptions. Like if you wake up and you have pink eye or something, they do not want you in the office. So even if you already used up your work from home day, they're like, well, you need to also use good judgment. If you're sick, we don't want you to get us sick. So just work from home. Okay, we'll let it slide this time. And what's also cool is like if the weather looks like it's going to be really bad, they will flat out tell us, look, please do not come into the office. Just stay home, be safe, work from home. And uh, the only downside about that is if, like, you get sick or if the weather's too bad or something, then you don't really have an excuse to not work from home. So it's not like you get a, a, a day off. Well, unless you're ab- absolutely sick to the point where you just can't even, where you just have to just say, you know what, I can't code today. But then, of course, you have to take a paid time off day. But hey, but I'm really just thankful that I have this job that I have. Is it a dream job? I don't know. I really don't know. It's it, it, it's a it's good pay. Um, unfortunately, with my car loan, student loan, and credit card bills, I don't really reap a lot of the benefits of the good pay. <laughs> but um, it's still it's good pay, and I do feel that I'm appreciated there. I really do feel that they try to make us all feel that that we're wanted, and there's not a lot of turnover there. I I think I can count on one hand. Not, I don't even need a full hand for this. The number of people who've been fired from that company since I started and people who get hired there, they tend to stay there for a long time. Like a lot of people in our QA department have been there for over 10 years. I've been there five years now. My boss has been there about seven years and doesn't look like he's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So I think I got myself in a good place. And if it turns out they decide they don't want me, then you know what? I'm pretty sure that because of client B, I have the proper skills to get a good job again somewhere else without a lot of hassle. And I'm just really, really thankful for that. And and what's really cool is it's it basically I'm getting paid to be a big freaking nerd because it turns out that if I'm not podcasting or spending quality time with my wife or playing video games or making or doing some kind of musical project, I'm writing code anyway, might as well get paid for it. So why not? Of course, this is the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast. And uh, those of you who are saying, okay, Sean, so you know how to program. So why aren't you doing any 7800 homebrews? Well, programming a website is not the same as programming a video game. To program a website, you're using a high level programming language. And what I mean by high level is that the language that you're using is very readable. It's almost English. Like you can, even if you don't know anything about programming, you could look at some source code and probably get the general idea of what's happening in certain parts of the source code. Like you could say, oh, okay, I see what's happening there. It's putting a message on the screen that says bite me or whatever. But when you're programming video games, usually it's not that case, especially with the 7800. The really, really standout homebrews on the 7800 and and 
pretty much all of the officially released titles in the 7800, they were programmed in a pretty low-level language, meaning that it's not quite as human-readable. It is written more toward being able to communicate directly with the, the CPU without requiring a lot of translation. High-level languages require translation before the CPU can look at them, but low-level languages don't. Like assembly programming, that's pretty low level. It's not the lowest level. It's kind of, well, it's more of a medium level, but it's a very different language. Like a language like basic or PHP or JavaScript or something, you'll have a command that says like, okay, put this stuff on the screen. It'll be obvious by looking at it. But in assembly programming, you have to set registers. You have to allocate memory and things. And it's just, oh man. And it's not the same. It's not the same. And also, I've never programmed a game. I don't know how to do collision detection. I don't know how to do artificial intelligence. So I mentioned before that I was actually considering doing one, like learning 7800 basic. And it's still in consideration, but it's not going to be anything like knock yourself out of your chair over the top. Wonderful. It's just going to be a simple card game. But if that ever does come to fruition, but. Programming one thing doesn't mean you can program another. Doesn't mean you can't either. But hey, that's uh, my professional life. And uh, so, yeah, um, I really don't know how else to end this little segment. So this is the end of the segment. Based on the programming I've done over the years, both professionally and uh, non-professionally, I guess, all going back, wow, wow, it's going to be 24 years, good lord, there's some things that I've learned and that I need to share with you, like why does certain things happen, uh, what to do when certain things happen, things like that, just take my advice, I'm a paid professional, <laughs> but uh, first of all, the big thing that people complain about is... I got to set a password, but it doesn't like any of the passwords I use. Well, the thing is, the people who design websites want to make them as secure as possible so that your password does not get compromised, so that you people can't guess your password. Like, for example, we want you to mix it up. We want you to stick some... Uh, some numbers in there or some weird characters like a pound sign or something because using a dictionary word, a word you can find in any dictionary too easy to guess. Somebody can set up a script and basically brute force your account open with it. So don't use a stupid password. Like do not use the word password as your password or just do password one, two, three or something too easy for somebody to guess. So think of a, a password you can remember, but that's difficult to guess. And don't use your dog's name. Don't use your wedding anniversary, whatever. Anything that people can find out about you, don't do it. It sounds like a pain in the butt, but you know what? It's for your security, especially if you're using a website that deals with monetary transactions. And in fact, there are laws in place that require certain types of websites to meet very strict password complication guidelines. Like where I work, for example, the site that my team works on, we are required by law to make sure that a password is at least uh, eight characters, has 
both lowercase and uppercase letters has at least one number in it and has at least one special character in it. That is not our choice. If we don't do that, we are in trouble. And something else, I always hear about these data breaches and with uh, uh, people's passwords have gotten into the hands of um, what the media calls hackers, but uh, I'm not going to get into that right now. One thing I I just want to say plain and clear, in case you didn't know, your password is never actually stored in plain text. So if someone were to grab hold of, say, all the passwords from a database, they're pretty much going to be useless if whoever did the website was wise in how the passwords were being stored. It is industry standard for your password to be stored in a special encrypted or hashed technique that cannot be reversed. What happens is you enter your password and there's little code in the back end that's going to take your password and convert it into a untranslatable string of characters, usually around 40 characters, maybe 64, maybe 128. And that string cannot be reversed. There is not an algorithm to reverse it. The only possible way it could be useful is if someone took that that uh, gobbledygook password that we translated and matched it up with a, with a dictionary of existing passwords with that already translated thing, which is why a lot of websites do what's called salting the hash, which means that uh, not only are they going to convert your existing password into an untranslatable mash of gobbledygook, but it's also going to append a string of characters on it so that even then it's not really your password that's being translated, but it's the password plus whatever that random string of characters is. So how are you able to log in though? Because isn't it supposed to look up your password and if the passwords match? Well, yeah, kind of. But what happens is when you log in during the login process, it's going to translate whatever you type in as your password into that bizarre string of characters And then it's going to see if that bizarre string of characters is in the database. So that's how that happens. So if a website's password database ever gets compromised, then there's, it's not really as big a deal as you would think it is because it is made as useless as possible because you can't just type in that jumbled up translated password and get it to work. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. And that's also why, if you remember a long time ago, like probably back in the 90s, if you used the forgot my password option on a website, a lot of times it would just email you your password. It's like, oh, no problem. Here's your password. The reason that they were able to do that is because that was before people realized, wait a minute, somebody could get into the database and suck out all the passwords. So back, back in those days, your password was never translated. It's like, okay, this is what they want their password to be. Here, let's store it. You want your password to be penguin butt? Okay. And the database is going to be penguin butt. Nowadays, because of that translation algorithm, you might type penguin butt as your password, but the database, it might say something like, uh, okay, the password is 14A97GF44G or something like that. So that's what happens there. And that's why no longer if you use the forgot my password option can it send you what your password is because it because literally nobody knows what your password is except you and if you forgot then you have to reset it 
Uh, also, some other things that uh, might happen. Uh, this happens actually pretty frequently. You might notice a glaring typo on a website, and if you decide to report it, then what happens is theoretically it'll get fixed eventually. If it's a small website that might be run by just one person, like say for a mom and pop business or something, they could probably just literally log into a server like a hosting provider and just go ahead and fix that typo. But if you're talking about a major website, like say Domino's or Pizza Hut or Amazon or something, then what's going to happen since a whole team works on it, they have a very tight release schedule and they're bound by certain laws regulating major websites and all kinds of legal issues come in and business issues. There's a huge process that's going to happen. Usually what happens when a major website has any kind of change to it is there's going to be a schedule. Okay, here's when our release is going to happen. Here are the changes we plan to make for the release. And what's going to happen is they're going to go through all the changes they plan to make, whether they be bug fixes or enhancements or additional code or whatever. They're going to approximate how long it's going to take to code all that stuff. And if it looks like it can't be done within the time frame between now and the next planned release, then some, then it gets pulled out of the release and moved to a later release. And it depends on a lot of things. Like it depends on how critical the issue is. Like if it's a simple typo where say a difficult, like say somebody misspells privilege on the website, well, that might be pushed off a little bit. It might not be considered a high priority versus say, oh, somebody found a bug at which you can no longer purchase a certain item. That's pretty bad. So it gets prioritized that way. In major websites, little typo things are not going to be fixed right away necessarily. They're going to get scheduled for a future release. And if it's determined it's not really high priority, it might take a long time before you see that uh, misspelled word fixed on a website. So if you report something misspelled and it doesn't get fixed, that's pretty much why. Oh, and by the way, speaking of all that, something that I've seen more than once happen is uh, somebody will fill out a feedback form, submit it. It'll say, hey, I found this problem with your website uh, and you know, here's what it should do. You should pay me. Ha ha ha. Well, here's a little secret for you. I've actually seen that happen once where somebody actually did get paid. Uh, the thing is though, don't expect to have somebody write out a check for you. It was more of a kind of a courtesy. Thank you. Because what happened was, I don't remember what the problem was, but somebody filled out the feedback form on the website we were working on. And this person said, I found something on your website that's not working. I was trying to do this and it didn't work. So I looked at your JavaScript code and I noticed that this was happening, but here's what it should look like. You should change this line of code to say this and that'll fix your problem. And we actually take that seriously. We'll say, hmm, you know what? I think this person's right. Let's try that out. So we'll test, we'll put that line in our raw code and test it offline and if it works, we'll be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And I actually saw one of our customer service people reach out to this person and say, hey, what's your address? And uh, we sent that person, I think, like a, an Amazon gift card or a Starbucks gift card or something as a thank you. Uh, you will not get paid. No other reason. There are some legal issues involved because we'd have to make you fill out a job application. We'd have to make you fill out tax forms and uh, we basically, you would essentially be hired as a like 
contractor for 30 minutes and it's not worth the hassle. So, uh, for either for you or for the people behind the scenes. So if that, if there's ever a chance in which we kind of agree with the sentiment that, uh, Hey, you ought to get paid for that. Then, you know, you, you probably, you may get sent a thank you gift of some kind, not a car or anything, but more like say, Hey, if you want to get a cup of coffee or buy a book, here you go. And another thing that a lot of people kind of moan about is like, for example, let's say you get an e- you subscribe to an email list and you're just getting way too many emails from it. Like true fire keeps sending you too many emails for, for uh, guitar sales or something, or pizza hut keeps sending you new emails about a special that's coming on, coming out for like a meat lovers pizza or whatever. And you're just getting tired of it. So you use the unsubscribe option. Well, you may notice that you may still be getting those emails for a little while. And I'll explain to you why that happens. When that happens, there has to be an additional database call made that says, okay, let's reach out to the database and unsubscribe this person. And a lot of times that database may not actually be physically attached to that website. It might be a separate entity that has its own connection So the website itself would have to make a contact with that external database. In some cases, it is literally a completely different company that controls that. So when you click unsubscribe or subscribe, a message would have to be sent over to that third-party company or to that external database. For a website's code to make a call like that, it's expensive. Not necessarily monetarily expensive, but in the programming business, when we say expensive, that means that it'll take up some time on the server, it'll slow things down, or it'll just plain delay things. Like you might be sitting there saying, okay, subscribe me, but if it's an external service that requires an additional connection, you could be waiting up to 10 seconds before you get a response back. And if you get too many of those happening at one time, like too many users trying that at one time, It'll put a terrible strain on the server, the site will slow down, and people won't be able to get to the parts of the site they want. So what happens usually is, especially if it's a major site that has thousands and thousands of users at any given minute, what's going to happen is your request to be unsubscribed will be sent to a queue, to a cache of some kind. And every X number of hours or, every, or once a day or once every 48 hours or something, one call is made to that external database that says, okay, all these people want out, so unsubscribe them. That way it's just one call making all those changes, and it usually happens during a time of day when the website typically does not experience a lot of traffic. So that way there isn't a lot of system slowdown. And if there is, it happens once and only once. So that's why a lot of times you have to wait for your changes to come into effect. And uh, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but going back to the whole thing about, oh, I found an error, you should pay me. Or, hey, I found a typo. Why hasn't it been changed yet? Uh, One thing I do want to say is if you are on a website and you find a problem, especially if it is preventing you from doing what you want to do, then you really absolutely should report it. There's usually a feedback form you can fill out or an email address or even a phone number. And when you do report it, you have to be as detailed as humanly possible. And really, it's not just for websites, but for anything. If you find a problem with anything and you have to report a problem, you got to be as detailed as possible. You complain about something not working and say, well, it doesn't work. Okay, what doesn't work? 
is if it's on the website, what doesn't work? Is it uh, when you try to check out and, and uh, you have uh, just one product in your shopping cart? Was it when you were trying to create an account? What happened? Like, what doesn't work? What were you trying to do at the time? And when it doesn't work, what do you mean it doesn't work? Did you get an error message? And if so, what was the exact wording of the error message? Saying, I got an error message doesn't help. There's a reason that the, that the error message has specific text to it. Uh, if you can do a screenshot of an error message and send it over, that would be really helpful. If you have a Mac, you have no reason not to do that. You just uh, hit, uh, was it shift function four or shift, hit shift command four, and you can draw a square around the error message and it saves it as a ping or a JPEG. If you're a Windows user, you can, uh, I think, what do you do? You hit print screen and then you paste it. Or what you can also do, there's a free program called Jing, J-I-N-G. I'll put that in the show notes, actually. In fact, it's available for, I think, all platforms, not just Windows. Very easy way to do a screen capture. But anything you can do to help somebody figure out exactly what you were doing, exactly what might have caused the problem, really, really helps. Because what we behind the scenes are going to do is we are going to try to replicate the problem that you just saw so we can see for ourselves. And also we're going to stick some code in there that's actually going to trace what's going on. We're going to see if there was, say, a variable not being paired up properly with the data that you're sending or if the data you're sending isn't being being sent at all or whatever. We're going to trace the code and see what's happening so we can fix it so it'll work for you. And while you're at it, if you discover something that doesn't work, especially if it doesn't work all of a sudden, you might want to try a different browser. You're using Firefox and suddenly a feature on a website doesn't work that you usually use? Try Chrome. Try Safari. Try something. Just try something else. There's a lot of times it might simply be that there's a browser issue especially if you just upgraded your browser, because sometimes there's some features in, say, JavaScript. Most websites use a butt-ton of JavaScript, and JavaScript runs inside your web browser. And if a web browser update makes that JavaScript not work, then that might be a problem there, so try a different uh, browser. Or it might be that you need to upgrade your browser. Like if you haven't upgraded your browser in say three years, that's going to be a problem, especially the way that uh, languages evolve and things get taken out, JavaScript changes and things like that. Upgrade your browser. Always try that. And I'm going to beg you, I'm going to implore you, please do everything you can to avoid using Internet Explorer, or as I like to call it, Internet Exploder. People use it because it's the default browser with Windows. But let me tell you something, this is coming from a developer who has to make sure that a website that takes people's money works well across all the most popular browsers like Firefox, Chrome, Internet Explorer, Safari on a Mac, Safari on iOS, Chrome on Android, basically all those suckers. And from my personal experience, the one browser that doesn't like to cooperate is Internet Explorer. It likes to interpret style sheets and JavaScript in its own certain ways. And I could go on forever about that. And geez, I, I, this used to happen. A lot. We, we used to support Internet Explorer 8 where I work, but because of the upgrades that we had to make to the, to the site, 
we had to use a version of Angular JavaScript, which is a JavaScript framework. We had to use a version of that that doesn't work with Internet Explorer 8. It was either upgrade to that or still support Internet Explorer 8 that would use code that would keep the site pretty slow, which is not a good thing. But when we used to support Internet Explorer 8, my boss used to send me tickets for issues people found with Internet Explorer 8. And I, I just one day I said, look, dude, why do you like to torture me with these Internet Explorer tickets? And he said, well, because you're good at fixing them. <laughs> it's kind of like that saying that, hey, I'm so good at my job that now I get to do other people's jobs, too. So <laughs> But yeah, just please don't use Internet Explorer if you don't have to. If it, Just download another browser. Firefox and Chrome are easy enough to do. If you don't know how to download and install something, you will find somebody who can do it for you. Just do it, okay? Don't use Internet Explorer, please, please. It causes more problems than it's worth. And speaking of Internet Explorer and using other browsers, well, if you use a browser other than what's pretty standard and common, like say Safari, Internet Explorer, Firefox, Chrome, whatever. If you use a weird browser or a hacked version of a browser, like let's say you use uh, what was it? Uh, Aviator, which is a hacked version of Chrome or uh, that version of, Fi was it Tor uh, that's called? Uh, or it's, it's a thing that has something, something to do with an onion, which is a hacked version of Firefox. Well, those are designed to work in specific ways. Don't expect your favorite websites to necessarily work well with those things. If you use a non-standard browser, don't expect a, a website to fully function. And something else that I just have to admit, um, going back to if you report like reporting a problem or something, gotta admit, once in a while, You'll find a problem that we literally just have no idea how to fix. It's it's quite simply. Usually it's because we cannot replicate the issue. We have all kinds of error logging in place. Uh, every time somebody makes a purchase, we use a statement that'll write out all of the details of that purchase. Who made that purchase? Where was it being delivered to? What were the items in that purchase? Were there any promos used in that purchase? How much money did we expect to collect from that person? How much money did we actually collect in that person? And by the way, if there's a difference, there's a problem. It means that somewhere there was a, a, a transaction issue, like the point of sale system took the wrong amount from you. Did this person use a credit card? And if so, was it a Visa, a MasterCard, a Diners Club? Um, does that even exist? I'm just throwing that out. Did this person use a gift card? Did this person redeem frequent customer points? Uh, did this person redeem credit card rewards? You know, what we basically everything we possibly can. So if we notice that there was an issue or somebody reports an issue, we can go back and find that person's exact transaction and say, okay, well, to replicate the problem, let's see if we can order the exact same things sent to the exact same address and let's see what happens. And then we'll do some more, some code tracing and experimenting and stuff just to see what's happening so we know how to fix it. But truth be told, once in a while there could be a fluke in which we just literally cannot control whatever happens. Like if it's a one-off thing, like we got a, we got a record that uh, somebody was charged $10 for a book, but the book should have only been $2. Well, we're going to try to replicate that problem. We're going to try to order that same book. But if we end up 
getting charged only $2 for it, then as far as we can tell, it's, it's working. It, it might've been just a one-time fluke, like a, like a one-time like glitch somewhere in the system, whether it be just a, a weird glitch in the website because of, uh, something maybe didn't finish loading by the time the order was submitted, or it could be that the point of sales system had a problem. So there are so many factors. In fact, just to give you an idea with a major website, like say Amazon or Best Buy or something, there are so many different groups involved. You'll have the people who actually program the website. If you sign up for a loyalty program, guess what? That's probably a completely different company actually controlling it. So if you signed up for a loyalty program, but you're not getting your loyalty information or your points or something, then it's one of two possibilities. It could be either that the website didn't properly send the information to the loyalty company or the loyalty company had a problem. So that kind of uh, makes things a little bit difficult. A website itself, there might be one company working on the actual website itself. There might be another company that was brought in to actually design it and say, okay, here's the layout of the site, now go code it. There could be another company that handles the loyalty. There could be another company that is hired to send out emails about sales coming up and specials and discounts. The database might actually be stored with a completely different company, a different service. So right away, we're talking about five different companies all working together at one point. There could be even a separate company that deals with, with cell phone things. Like they'll send you a text if there's a sale on your favorite items or something. You can see like how many companies could be involved in a major website. And if something goes wrong, it could be on any of those companies. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. You would think they would just use one company to do all of that stuff or they do it all in house, but that's not how it always works. So, yeah. And once again, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but, uh, I apologize for that. But one other thing that I got to talk about is, um, it might be actually possible to go back and trace your steps right down to every single click because there are certain tools that some websites will use just for that purpose. Like I think Google analytics does that. Like if you're having a problem, like if, if you think you got charged the wrong thing or something that what might happen is somebody who works on that website will go into Google analytics and find your session that has your name attached to it. And they can actually look through it and see everything that you saw It'll actually say step by step by step. It'll say, okay, the user went to this page. Then the user clicked on this item. Then the user added this item to the shopping cart, blah, 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 blah. And we could see that, hey, if you got overcharged, well, maybe what happened is according, according to what we're looking at, it'll, we have evidence right here that you actually added a more expensive item to the cart than what you said you did. So basically what I'm saying is if you're, Registering a complaint about how a website session went, don't lie, because there are ways to find out if you are lying, quite simply. And you might say, well, what if Google Analytics was wrong? Ooh, well, that's Google. Um, Google is a massive corporation, and they are going to test their code like you would not believe before they release it. How often do you hear about Google making a mistake? 
especially because they're in the business of data mining. They want all your information. They're going to make darn well sure that their code works so they can gather up all your information. I'm not, I'm not saying this as like a big brother thing because the whole reason they do it is, well, how much does it cost to use Google software? Nothing. Something's got to pay for it. You know how it gets paid for? Google data mines everything they can about you so they can advertise to you and they get money from advertisers. So that's what happens. They're not trying to be evil or anything. They're just trying to sell you stuff. So, so yeah, chances that Google analytics don't work properly slim. It's possible, but it's just not likely. There's another tool that, uh, some companies use. I don't remember what it's called, but it actually snaps video in a way of your session. So you call up and say, Hey, I clicked here and it didn't add it to my cart. And now I'm, but I was still charged for it and I'm mad and all that. Well, we can go back and watch video of your session. Everything that you clicked on, everything that you saw, everything that you typed. The only thing that's not going to show up is if you are filling out a credit card field because uh, services that do that, they actually basically blur out the credit card field. So you, so we can't see your credit card number, but, uh, we can actually go back and watch literally your mouse movements and everything so we can see exactly what happened. So we can go ahead and verify, okay, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You didn't add it to the cart, but you still got charged for it. So that's a that's an issue we have to investigate. Or we can say, oh, yeah, well, this video shows that you absolutely did add it to your cart. And uh, we might actually send you a copy of the video to prove it. <laughs> but uh, so... Basically, if you're reporting an issue, don't lie. You can probably get caught lying. So <laughs> oh, but that, that's just some words of wisdom I kind of like to share. Some things that I've learned during my career as a website developer. Good night, everybody. Well, my friends, thank you so much for allowing me to get this off my chest. Uh, this episode that I'm titling Sean's burnout number one, because I got a feeling it's going to happen again sometime, hopefully not too soon, which I can just regale you with more, um, whatever off topic thing I can think of. What you heard today was almost kind of, uh, what I have in mind for my next podcast, which will be called autobiography of a schnook, except it'll be much more formal, much more organized and hopefully much more listenable. But that's, um, I guess that's uh, how I was going to do things today. I have some people I'm going to thank right now in alphabetical order. These are the people who have sponsored the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And I invite you to do the same. Thank you to Ed Ladden Controllers. Thank you to Kyle Etter, to Jimmy G, Great Offender, Richard Grounds. James Shackle, latest addition to the list. Thank you so much, James. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Paul Steele, thank you. And Richard Valdez, thank you all. And again, the next time I get a payout from Patreon, it's going straight into Moe's scholarship fund. And I am linking that in the show notes. And again, thank you to those of you who donated through Patreon because you didn't realize it at the time, but uh, you're helping a girl's dream come true and uh, the scholarship fund is really rising and it's, I, I hope to make that thing just keep going up. It's really, really great. But you know what? I have to decide on a homebrew for the next episode. 
Um, I'm hoping to line up a nice homebrew hardware episode of a particular kind coming up soon. But in the meantime, I want to go to software. So for episode 33, I'm going to talk about the homebrew called Rider of the Night. But anyway, in the meantime, you can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. You can financially support this podcast at patreon.com slash homebrew78. Go to the show notes page to view the show notes, especially for the link to the Moe Dworkin Cantor Scholarship Fund that is at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. And fab4it.com is spelled F-A-B and then the number four and then it.com. Twitter handle is homebrew78. And the YouTube channel is homebrew7800. Next time you hear from me, it will be more on topic. And please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. And if you can, please chip in a few bucks to Moe's scholarship. I'm sure her family would absolutely be thrilled to see that, as would the recipients of the scholarships. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for putting up with this weird episode. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. 